All right, well, good morning and welcome to our Young and Partners Forum presentation on life science venture capital, past, present, and future, past, current, and future, I guess it's called. Um, as most of you know, Young and Partners is a boutique investment bank. We're focused on life sciences and chemicals companies, and we provide a number of services, including private placements, mergers and acquisitions, financial advisory, and corporate strategy uh, for those life science and chemical companies. Uh, our panelists this morning are two of the leading venture life science venture capitalists from two of the life science leading life science venture capital firms, uh, Carrie Pfeffer from Third Rock Ventures and Ali Bebahani from NEA Associates. And uh, I'll give a brief introduction and then I'll ask of each of them and then ask each of them maybe to briefly introduce their firms and, and what they do and, and what they look for uh, in, uh, in companies. Um, first, uh, Carrie Pfeffer is, a, is a, an MD and a partner at Third Rock Ventures, uh, which he joined in 2007. He has more than 25 years of business and transaction experience, along with biotech management and trans business development, as well as um, executive management experience. He leads Third Rock's business development efforts and has assumed active leadership roles in a number of their portfolio companies. Prior to this, he spent 10 years at Biogen in a variety of roles, and then he founded a boutique consulting firm uh, and <laughs> before he joined uh, Third Rock. Uh, he has a MD. This will actually be a little familiar because Ali also was, has an MD from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from Wharton. Uh, and Carrie has a BA as well in biochemistry from Columbia University. Ali Bemahani uh, is also a, an MD and is a general partner of NEA Associates and also joined there in 2007. Um, prior to this, he was a consultant in business development at the Medicines Company, and before that was a venture associate at Morgan Stanley Ventures. As I mentioned, he has an MD from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from Wharton, as well as a BA in biomedical engineering, electrical engineering, and chemistry from Duke. And with that, I'm going to ask uh, Carrie first to tell us a little bit about Third Rock. Yeah, sure. Uh, so thank you, Randy, for uh, you know for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to to speak to the to the group here. So um, yeah, as many of you know, uh, you know Third Rock has been around now since about 2007 that I joined at the front end of, uh, of, the, of the firm when, when it was founded. And it was founded as you guys may remember from the uh, executive team at Millennium, Mark Levin, Bob Tepper and Kevin Starr. And it was really founded on the notion at the time, and this is gonna um, sound different than where we are today, but it was, it was really founded on the notion at the time that, um, you know, there was not a lot of sort of early company creation taking advantage of the explosive innovation that was going on um, in science. And so uh, that's that was really the notion. We wanted to build a firm that was going to do company creation um, with and take advantage of the great innovation that was that was taking place. And so we've done that and we've spent the last now almost 14 years, uh, you know, sort of building the firm. And just, you know, just to give you some statistics, I mean, we're, we're now working on our fifth fund. We've got about $2.7 billion under management. Our current fund is about $770 million, and we're literally right in the middle of that. 
Um, and most of the investments that we do are companies that, um, you know, we build ourselves or help entrepreneurs build. Um, we always bring in great entrepreneurs, great founders into every one of our companies, whether they started the idea or the idea came from us. We always, we always do that. Um, and I can talk later, you know, more about sort of what we invest in, but we invest in life sciences. We're very much focused on the therapeutic side um, and we invest across areas. We, we're not, uh, you know, sort of wedded to only oncology or only, you know, particular areas. We really go where the science leads us. And we're also, we also have taken um, some opportunities in, you know, in, in um, the diagnostic space, once again, in life sciences or in the device space, also obviously focused on life sciences, but our bread and butter is really very much so on the therapeutic side. And we tend to invest a fair amount of money into every company that we do. So even in something like a 700 plus million dollar fund, we'll probably build in the range of about 10 companies, um, not, not more than that. And, um, you know, we can talk later about why we do that as well and what we think the advantage is and, and how we perform once a company is launched. But that's effectively, um, that's effectively what we do. We have, I'm just looking at the list here of other things to cover. We, we have a fairly large firm uh, because we're very much focused on building companies. We have a lot of people in the firm who help with both ideation and on the operation side of building the company. So we actually have over 70 people in the firm, um, you know, helping us uh, in all different facets of, of kind of what we do. So, um, and we, we're focused in the Boston, Cambridge area, but we do have a small office on the West Coast in the Mission Bay area. And we, um, you know, we build companies there as well. Terrific. Allie? Thanks, Randy. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, so I work at New Enterprise Associates. Um, we're one of the oldest and one of the largest venture firms. Um, so we're currently investing in EA17. It's a $3.6 billion fund geared towards uh, both investing in tech and healthcare. I only focus on the healthcare side here and the mandate's fairly broad. We tend to be um, you know, therapeutic area and sector area agnostic, but you know, the primarily the, the primary focus is biotech, but we also do medical device um, healthcare services and healthcare IT investing. Um, and we'll invest across all stages. So we don't do a lot of company creation like Carrie and Third Rock uh, do, but we will, you know, about half of what we've traditionally done has been in the seed series A kind of financings. And then um, we'll also do later stage private financings. And we're, we also will invest um, in public companies as well. Um, so fairly broad mandate in terms of sector and stage. Um, and, and again, tend to, you know, partner kind of with, with companies and entrepreneurs across all, all, all of those stages of, uh, of a company's life. Very good. And, and, and um, your nationwide, worldwide, how, how many offices do you have? Yeah, now? so, you know, really, uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting. We've always been bi-coastal. So, um, you know, two of the founders, uh, one of, you know, were on the East Coast. One came out of T. Rowe Price, the other from Alex Brown. And then we, the, the third founder, Dick Bramlick, was based out in San Francisco. So we've always been in the D.C., Baltimore, uh, San Francisco area. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Well, great. Well, thank you for that. Um, in terms of the of the current life sciences environment, I think many on the on the Zoom will know um, that 2020 was a record year in in many ways. Um, there were 17 billion dollars of funds raised um, in healthcare venture capital last year, which was a record. 
There is $52 billion invested in the US and Europe and an additional 12 billion in, in China, um, again, in healthcare venture capital. Um, approximately half of that, about 25 billion was in biopharma, um, 11 billion in health tech, health tech, which has become you know, much, much bigger over the last several years, 10 billion in diagnostics and tools and 5 billion in devices. Um, you know, I guess the, the, next, the question really is how do you view kind of where we are right now in the healthcare venture capital environment? Are you seeing more or fewer investments than usual? You know, what categories are, are kind of the hottest? And maybe start with Ali this time. Yeah, I mean, it's, I would say it's been a pretty fluid dynamic market. And it's uh, every time I think it's, you know, either going to slow down or it can't get crazier. It, it certainly seems like it, it get, it's gotten crazier. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's been amazing to, to think, you know, looking back kind of in, in March or April of last year, I mean, my, my, you know, and you're seeing the Dow drop, uh, you know, 2000 points, you know, my sort of thinking was, okay, well, finally, like things are going to, you know, after six, seven, eight years of an epic biotech IPO market, um, finally, things are going to slow down. And then you had like Zentalis and Oric and, you know, some of these companies go public and, you know, presumably like the worst time that you could ever imagine to go public. And they actually did well, right. And, and I think what you've seen is, um, you know, that's that, that sort of cadence then, you know, kind of kept in the, the biotech IPO side. And, and that that's really bled into the, the private financing side. And so, I mean, I would say in the last year, I mean, that where the, you've seen the most activity have, have been in, you know, what's you know, being called crossover financings, right? Where, um, you know, it's, uh, and, and traditionally it's, it's moved upstream, right? So before it was sort of series season on where you'd see kind of public investors doing private financings, you know, in that pre-IPO round. And then, you know, in the last six months, you've sort of started to see that migrate to series Bs, um, financings being crossover rounds. And, I mean, in the last month, I've been hearing of entrepreneurs coming in, raising a Series A, wanting to do a crossover round, which that to me, I don't even really understand. But, you know, that, that I think it just sort of speaks to kind of where how, how fluid the market is right now. Um, I mean, certainly there's been some softness on the public side. I think kind of like what we saw in 2015 and 2018, it'll be interesting to see it, are those, you know, in those periods, the, the, the softness was sort of short lived. And then, you know, it, the, the kind of the both the private and public markets come, sort of kept on going. And I think, you know, we're sort of in the midst of this softness and it'll be interesting to see is this sort of, you know, going to be permanent, uh, not permanent, but, you know, more long lived or short lived. And I think that's gonna really dictate where the private financing market goes depending on the answer to that question. Terrific. And, uh, and Carrie, what are, you, what, are, what are you seeing these days? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what, what Ali said. Obviously, I, I think um, you know the 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 markets on the venture side for sure in life sciences have been crazy, and there's a ton of money and a ton of investment. I, I mean, I actually think you know it's been I think mostly driven by the innovation that's out there. I mean, I mentioned before, you know, when we got started in 2007 you know, and I wasn't, candidly, I wasn't looking that closely before then, but but there was just a ton of innovation going on. And the pace of that has only increased. Um, I mean, it, it really is tremendous, the the way science is moving and, and uh, you know, and, and the way there's now sort of, you know, it, it used to be there, you know, you were a scientist working in a lab, working on something, and, you know, maybe somehow you would end up starting to 
you know, think about, hey, could this could this be a company? And now everybody's doing that. I mean, it's it's almost it's part of the language in the you know in the universities in the medical centers. I mean, I can tell you, I actually um, I'm involved in a in a in a course that's taught at MGH, and it's specifically taught related. It's specifically taught to physicians who are interested in translation that is translating their you know um you know uh, science into you know the commercial realm and i think mgh is not the only one that's doing this i think it's it's sort of across the board happening so there's a lot of that going on there's a ton of innovation science is moving i think that ben you know i mean we in our own portfolio have 55 56 companies and we over the course of the last almost 14 years now have 16 products that are on the market from our portfolio you know that's incredible i think any pharma company would be and i've heard this from pharma companies would be sort of excited to have that kind of record right um you know over, over 14 years having 16 products so so to me i think a lot of it is driven by you know innovation and there's a lot of excitement around it and um, you know, and I think that that's all great for patients, uh, ultimately, which is fantastic. Yeah. What, what did you, what impact did you guys see from, from COVID-19? I mean, did that lead to new investments or I, I know it had an effect on clinical trials that were ongoing in some of your portfolio companies, but how, how would you say the last year has been affected by, by the pandemic? And maybe start with Terry at this time. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the, the biggest impact is what you said, Randy. I mean, we've seen we've seen a lot of impact on clinical studies, which has been, you know, which has definitely slowed some things down, right? Because um, especially small companies, that's the biggest investments. Those are the biggest investments we make um, ultimately, and that definitely can hurt, right? I mean, you slow a clinical trial down by six months or a year, and you're you're really sort of cutting into the company's burn rate and, and, you know, capital. Um, I think that, you know, people have been understanding, we've been able to sort of, uh, you know, manage through all of that. On the earlier research side, every one of our companies has, I think, done a really good job in general of managing through how to get the science done. You know, we've had sort of skeleton crews, we've had all sorts of rotations, um, you know, every company's done it a little bit differently, but in general, I think we've we've managed to get the science done, which has been good. So I don't think there's a huge impact there. A little bit of an impact working with CROs. I mean, CROs in certain places had been impacted, certainly early in the pandemic, a lot of the Chinese CROs were, were impacted. And so that, that created a little bit of a blip in terms of getting stuff done. Um, you know, we personally, we, we've seen, and in fact, we're working on one right now, uh, we've seen some ideas come out of COVID in terms of just sort of, you know, new company creation. Um, there's a ton of data that's been created um, that, you know, we're sort of thinking through how one might utilize that data for, you know, other, other therapeutic um, ideas. Um, so there's, there's that kind of thing um, that's come out of it. But, you know, look, overall, obviously, it hasn't been a good thing. Um, it's been challenging overall, but I think uh, I think people have sort of, you know, sort of risen to the to the time and, and managed through it. Yeah, and Ellie, have you have you made any investments without actually meeting the company at this point, or how is that? How yeah, that you know, that's been interesting to to you know. At, at first, I think we you know again kind of going back to April, the idea of like investing without ever actually meeting the person seemed <laughs> just crazy, right? So, um, and you know, and and I would say you know, I mean at the beginning of sort of the, the, the COVID 
period, I mean, we, we probably, you know, it, it, the pain was sort of different for different companies, right? So, you know, I think Carrie is spot on, you know, the companies that were commercials, you know, certainly, I mean, that, that were um, in the clinic certainly had some impact. The companies that were commercial had even worse of an impact, right? Because all of a sudden you went from, you know, doing like three, 4 million revenue a month to like, I remember in April, a couple of our companies were down to like a hundred thousand literally within a month. Right. And so like there, the pain is, you know, was even worse, right. Because they went from thinking that, you know, like their cash requirements were not that significant to all of a sudden, like they became significant. And, you know, the beauty of at least clinical stage or preclinical stage biotech is you're always burning money. Right. So, it, you know, that it's not like you have a revenue line that gets turned on or turned off. So the, you know, it, it's all relative, I think, but but coming back to your question, I mean, so that that made us, I think, you know, certainly on um, like seeing some of our commercial stage companies, you know, be impacted significantly. We 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 did retrench for you know a month or so, and then you know you sort of learned to adapt, right? And we all started doing Zoom meetings, and and then before you know long, you know, like I, I think we all sort of looked each other in the face when when we were you know looking at a few investments, and you know, and and I think the the question was, were we going to do this without actually meeting the entrepreneurs now? Having said that, like the you know the, the investments that we have made, we we actually had met the people beforehand, right? Or you know, like we had seen the company in like a previous round, or you know, we knew some of the investors, right, who had created the company, and so I think there it became a lot easier. So you know, I would say, you know, we we have you know most of the investments we've made in the pandemic era have been mostly in things where there is that a hook, right? Whether we know either the one of the co-investors or the founders, or we know the entrepreneur from before, um, you know, there's, there's something that you can grab on to, you know, we have made one, you know, investments where we didn't know the people at all, but, but I, I think it, it's really hard. I mean, there you tried to, you know, you, you know, in, in some respects, trying to do zoom and, and trying to really, you know, because making the investments, the easy part, right. You have to live with the, the, the investment afterwards for, you know, it can be a long time. Right. And so, you know, you really, you know, it makes it really difficult um, unless you really know the people. But I, I think predominantly, you know, most of the, the things that we've done post-COVID, have there, there has been a hook of knowing someone as part of that. And that that's made it easier. Mm-hmm. Just an sure. experience maybe to mention on, on, on my side. I mean, one so one company that I was involved in that we were trying to launch uh, was a company called uh, Phase Medicines back a little while ago, and I was the interim CEO of that company at the front end, and we were trying to syndicate the Series A because we were raising a fair, we were raising eighty million dollars, and so TRV was putting in in the range of 45, 50 million bucks, and we were syndicating the rest. And so I was actually on the other side of it, where I was, you know, mm-hmm. we were presenting to a bunch of other investors, and it was all over Zoom, and we ended up closing the round completely under Zoom. I, I don't know that we've actually. Formally, I mean, obviously, some of the folks we knew, but in terms of the internal team, I mean, there is obviously a permanent team there. I'm not sure that they've they've actually met many of the board members face to face yet. Even though we're now a launch company, we've started. We, you know, we actually have a full time CEO now, et cetera, et cetera. So it's weird. I mean, it, it really is weird. I would never have imagined that we would do that either. Um, but you know, and. You know, as I said, I mean, some of the people we knew, some of the people we didn't know, the CEO that we hired, you know, we actually knew from from previous discussions that we had years ago. But even in that situation, I mean, I actually, you know, went and met him at an outside venue for a couple of hours just to spend time and just really sort of make sure that, you know, it was the right hire. So, you know, you make do, you figure it out, but it is it is weird. Yeah, very good. Yeah. 
I would, ahead, I would point to the real, I mean, it was really, I think the public investors that, you know, kind of opened my eyes, right? I mean, the fact that they were doing these virtual, you know, you, you took a roadshow that was a week and a half on an IPO and you made it, you know, three, four days all virtually. And, you know, and like there were deals being done and they were doing well. And so that, that made me start to say, all right, well, you know, maybe this isn't as crazy, but it, it's hard. I mean, it, you know, you, you certainly, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see if there are, you know, and I haven't heard any, but like the negative stories of just doing a Zoom only sort of investment and what happens. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure that will happen and that will come, but, um, but it'll be interesting to see what, what, what uh, if, if that does come to play. You can move much more quickly. That is true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. You don't have to go that everybody get get everyone together the same way as, as you used to. Well, good. Well, um, why don't we talk a little bit about how the how you've seen the the life science venture capital environment change over time? Um, you know, what what is what have the drivers been? I mean, I assume things that obviously you've talked about innovation carry and and I assume things like the FDA's attitude towards different types of companies, the competitive environment and Clearly, the IPO and, and M&A markets as an exit, probably all, all our drivers, but maybe talk a bit about how you've seen it change over the last time. I guess you both started 14 years ago, so that uh, over that period, how about, um, and Ali, why don't we start with you first this time? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I started, I remember I started my venture career at Morgan Stanley Venture Partners on July 5th of 2000, right? So this oh. was just right after the tech bubble had kind of burst, right? And, and that Monday, I mean, I want to say we approved like 15 deals. And then the Mondays following after that, there were like zero deals, right? And so, you know, when when the, it, it was always sort of interesting to me that when when the, when the you know, market stopped, it, it came to a halt, right? And you sort of saw that happen in 2008, nine, right? Similar sort of circumstances. Um, I think what's really different now is, um, I mean, this, this kind of, you know, if you want to call it an IPO window is, has been the longest that I think we've ever sort of seen, right? I mean, I think you can kind of maybe say, all right, well, in 2015 and 18, there were maybe times where it kind of slowed down, but, you know, it's been a stretch of call it six, seven, eight years, right? That, um, that it's been going on. And I think that's really, that's really impacted how the private market has, um, has, uh, is, is sort of evolved as well. And so, you know, it's not, you're seeing larger series A's, larger financings, just generally, you're seeing a lot more investors coming in, you're seeing a lot of, you know, public um, crossover uh, money coming into the space. And I think that's really what's changed. I mean, the, the people who are doing the seed series A's, and that's been relatively constant, and the valuations may have crept up a little bit, but it's been, it's been fairly steady. And, and the people who are doing the company creation, like Carrie and Third Rock, and Person and others. I mean, the, most of those players are all the same. I think really what's changed is the the volume of capital and that you know Series B, Series C crossover type financings, and that's that sort of has ballooned and it's it's kind of kept on increasing over the last six seven years. And I think the real question is, okay, well if if this and you know Randy, you and I worked. I, I remember um, when I was an analyst at Lehman, and I, I was I was it was like two in the morning, and you know this was like during the the tech bubble and. And I remember Fred Frank was there and I, I was talking to him and he said, well, and I said, well, you know, maybe this is just a fundamental change in kind of how business is done. And like, you know, we're, this isn't like a, a bubble or anything like that. And, and Fred was like, well, that's not the case. Like this, this, this will come to pass as well. Like every, you know, all, all good things usually come to an end. And so, you know, but it has been six, seven years that this, the, the, the biotech market has been kind of IPO market's been going. And, but, you know, at, at some point I, I have to imagine like it'll at least slow down or, or um, you know, be different. And then the question is, does that does that 
pool of capital and the Series B crossover space sort of decrease, go away. And I think that's the part that's a little bit hard to know, but it's, it's a great time for companies. I think, you know, great time for in innovative science where you can take something that, you know, things are, you know, even four years away from a clinic um, that are able to get funded, exciting science, exciting, you know, new platforms that, you know, would have struggled to get funded in 2008 or 2009 or, or you know, are able to raise capital um, and, and a significant amount of capital early on. Gary? Um, you know, I, th I think, look, a lot of things that, that Ali said, obviously, I, I agree with. I'll, I'll mention a couple of, you know, just a couple of trends that, that I've seen over the time. So first of all, interesting to note, when we got started in 2007, you know, the end of 2007, there, there was actually, you know, as I mentioned, there was no IPO market. I mean, it was literally people sort of, you know, I think scratched their head a bit about, wow, getting a new fund started, no IPO market, what are you guys doing? But um, there, there was certainly a little bit of that, but, and it was a bit contrarian, but, um, you know, so we assumed at the time that a lot of our sort of liquidity exits would come from, uh, you know, from M&A, candidly. And uh, it turns out it's been exactly the opposite. You know, we have, if I look at sort of, you know, all of our liquidity, all of our exits, it's probably two thirds IPO, one third M&A. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's just been an interesting shift in kind of the way, the way we, we think about it. And it has actually, you know, had impacts for us across the board in other ways. We've had to think about, okay, public company stockholders, how do we manage that? Which is something we never, you know, we, we actually just, I mean, we assume we'd have to do some of it, but not at the scale that we do. So that was just an interesting thing. The crossover dollars that Ali mentioned completely agree. And, and that maybe this was mentioned before, but, you know, when back, you know, back then in the 2008, 9, 10 timeframe, crossovers were just, I think, starting to, you know, public uh, investors just starting to sort of get involved in the Series B, Cs, you know, whatever, just, just you know, the rounds just before going public. Now, as we see, we go talk to crossover investors when we're syndicating a Series A. And they come in, um, obviously not in everything, but they certainly come in. And, um, you know, they're excited to sort of, uh, you know, goose their returns by getting, you know, getting in at their earlier stage, lower prices, et cetera. And, and I think in general would claim that they're having good success on that. So that's an, another thing. I will say, um, you know, when we got started, I think, you know, I, I think we, we did sort of play a significant role in the initiation of new company creation at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, really sort of, you uh, made that a very significant part of what we were doing for sure. And I think, you know, now obviously lots of other firms are doing new company creation, which is great overall, we think. I mean, we, we think it's a, you know, it's a great way to sort of get a handle on new innovation and move it, move it forward. The FDA view, you know, over the years, obviously breakthrough therapy and, and, and other, uh, you know, things the FDA has done have been very positive, I think. And then, you know, I mentioned this a little bit before, but the pharma, pharma need has never been greater, right? Um, you know, there's, there, there are fewer companies, large companies at least, because there's been M&A, et cetera. But, you know, for them to, you know, once again, a 10% growth rate on a, you know, $40 billion of revenue or whatever, it, it's pretty huge, right? I mean, you gotta, it's, it's pretty hard to, hard to manage. So um, in any case, you know, I think that that's a big driver as well. And will continue to be for a long time to come in, in our view. 
Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it, but I mean, I've noticed that the, the size of a lot of these series A's has gotten much, much bigger. And I know, Carrie, I know you, you started doing that a little bit even earlier. On. I don't know if Third Rock was the first company to do that, but certainly, um, you know, that, that has been a big change, at least that I've seen. I mean, it used to feel like, you know, companies would raise five or 10 million. Now they seem to be raising 80 or a hundred million. I, do you want to comment a little bit about that and, yeah, no, and what that right. has mean, meant? We, yeah, when we got started, you know, we, we did get started with the intent of, you know, sort of putting more money in at the front end. And initially though, I will tell you, our view was 35 to $40 million was a big series A and it was. Um, mm-hmm. it, it absolutely was. I mean, I remember, you know, Agios was a company we invested in with a couple of other, uh, that was a syndicated uh, Series A. And I think $35 million was the initial round. So, um, and that was considered a big number, right? Um, and, uh, you know, today, you know, we invest um, easily on average 50 plus million dollars in a Series A. Uh, and, uh, and then sometimes we'll syndicate and, and we'll bring it up to 80 to $100 million total. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and there are folks who've invested 200 plus million dollars in Series A's um, as well and, you know, syndicated those or, or what have you. I mean, Arch tends to put lots of money to work at the front end, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I think, at least for us, it's paid off um, largely because having you know, the, a significant ownership stake in these companies makes a big difference. And we also spend a lot of time. We have few companies per fund, as I said, in the range of 10 to 12, but we try to work each company and get involved in each company and not have a lot of zeros. Um, we really sort of, you know, work very hard at every one of our companies and we can talk more about the process we have internally to sort of do that, et cetera. But we put a lot of resource into the companies, even post the initial investment, to help them be successful. Great. Okay, why don't we talk a little bit about um, exits? I, we've touched on it already, but you know, the IPO market, as as Ali and I guess Gary both both mentioned, has been incredibly strong. I mean, twenty twenty, um, you know, record IPOs, record IPO proceeds per deal, record IPO, pre-money valuations per deal. I think something like 500 million was the median in 2020 and 200 million was the median proceeds. So, you know, just an incredibly hot um, biotech IPO market. And biotech M&A has been strong. I don't think we had records last year, but it's also been um, quite strong. And as you mentioned, there aren't that many pharma companies, but a lot of the large, what used to be called biotech companies, I don't know that they're different really than the pharmas anymore, but, um, you know, they, they also are, are making a lot of acquisitions. So maybe talk a little bit, and we'll start with Terry, but maybe talk a little bit about how you think about exiting your investments. When do you start thinking about it? Um, and then, you know, do you look at, how do you look at IPOs versus M&As? Um, have you guys looked at SPACs? I don't know, a lot of questions, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we've tried to, um, you know, we've tried to build every one of our companies, um, with the notion that we're, we're, we're building a great company and that's kind of the way we talked about it. That's the way we set up the initial plan, et cetera. And I just contrast that to some folks who sometimes, you know, build to buy or build specifically to exit or build kind of more semi-virtual type companies so that they're, you know, sort of, uh, 
more easily targetable as M&A targets or what have you. We, we don't do that, actually. We really try to build companies um, from the ground up that we feel like are going to be, you know, be real companies. Uh, and, you know, but obviously, as we move forward, you know, this is why, I mean, the strong IPO market has been fantastic for us. You know, obviously, at some point, you get to a point where you need to raise a lot of capital and your cost of capital staying private is just too great. And so you end up, you know, going public. And so that ends up, as I said, two thirds of our cases ends up being kind of the way we, the way we've exited. Um, you know, the M&As have come typically later. Um, you know, they've come uh, when the company is, you know, sort of candidly closer to just, you know, knowing that there's a drug there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, whether that's a post phase two proof of concept or even starting a phase three or what have you. And so those have happened, um, but they've happened in general a little bit a little bit later. Once again, we don't build the companies to to get bought, um, but ultimately, when there's an offer on the table, we consider it like anybody else, and and uh, you know figure out what the right thing to do is. So that's kind of the way we think about um, liquidity. You mentioned SPACs, um, and this has been announced. I mean, one of our companies, you know, Tango is. Uh, you know, you know, has just, uh, you know, been, uh, you know, been acquired by a SPAC. And so um, that's, uh, that's, I think that's our first experience with, you know, an actual happening, if you will, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I think it was a very high quality uh, SPAC through Boxer Tavistock. And, uh, um, you know, and I think uh, it's been, you know, so far a really, really good experience. Um, and uh, we're now, through, you know, going through the SEC process, et cetera. So uh, we're not at the, at the back end of that yet. We'll see. But, um, but it's been a good experience. It is, you know, in my mind, are SPACs a fad that are going to go away in another two, three years? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I thought that a while ago, but I don't, I don't know if I think that now anymore. I think it is, it, it is a really good option for certain situations. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think it's a good, another tool to have both for the company and for investors um, to have, uh, you know, to access uh, significant capital at, you know, not ridiculous cost of capital, so. Mm -hmm. And Ali, what has your experience been? Yeah, I mean, I think many of the same things that, that, that Carrie talked about. I mean, I, I always go into investments wanting to build a big company and, um, and, and try and not to sell um, for, you know, but along the way, you know, just based on sort of the risk ahead or the capital required, it may make sense, right, to, to sell. But, you know, I, I love the fact that you can take a company public and raise the capital and control your own destiny. I mean, that, that's the, the one thing I learned at the medicines company was, you know, it's always great to control your own destiny. And so like, that's what, you know, being able to go public is, and I think, you know, I mean, everyone forgets how bad before 2012 was, was in, bi in biotech, right? I mean, just, you know, like, there, I mean, it was not uncommon to have 50 million bridges, you know, dollars of bridge, you know, notes out, you know, it was hard to get any financing done. You were in series E, series F land sometimes in certain companies that had been around for a while. And, and you know, and, and it would have been great to sell companies at that point, but it was like pulling teeth from pharma company to get them interested, even at, at any price, right? And so I think, you know, the dynamics were a lot different. Um, you know, now, you know, with, with just a viable IPO market, there's, there's the path to, you know, control your own destiny. And I think that's really what changed biotech, right? And was, um, and, and, you know, everyone forgets like those, those IPOs that went out in 2012, it was like, it was brutal, right? I mean, there was, 
we were in high oh, period therapy. You had to invest, right? The VCs always had to put money in in order to get it done, as I recall. Yeah, I mean, there were maybe 12, 13 potential public investors, right? The VCs would definitely have to put, you know, money in like, and that, that maybe some of that's different, you know, not that different today. But, you know, the valuations, right? I mean, we're 100 million free money, right? I mean, we took Hyperion public, I think at 100 million free money for a phase three asset in an orphan disease, you know, before orphan got hot. And, you know, and, and I think it was about a year and a half later that it, it was sold for, for over a billion. So, you know, it was just a much different time frame. And so I think that, the, you know, things have changed quite a bit. And I think, you know, for, for the better, right? Um, and allows you to control your own destiny. You know, what, what does worry me is, you know, the more money there is, the, the higher, the reason that series A's are higher is the burn rates are higher, right? Even as private companies. And that's because people aren't, you know, before you were like, okay, we're trying to be capital efficient. We would take one asset forward and then, you know, we'd have a pipeline, but you're really dedicating 80% of the resources to that lead program. Now, you know, we're, we're maybe taking two or three programs forward, right? And so that, that increases the, the cost. And, and so the availability capital helps on that end. Um, but, you know, if capital becomes tight again, then all of a sudden, you know, you're, a, you're running 80 miles per hour into a brick wall, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that people forgot about before 2012 all of a sudden become, you know, come, come to play. And so there's, there is this balance about, you know, using capital efficiently and, and, um, and you know, pushing programs forward aggressively. Um, I, I think the SPAC side of things is, is interesting. So we do tech and healthcare. I will tell you the, on the tech side, the SPAC market really opened up you know, the IPO landscape for companies um, that weren't going to be able to get public, right? So, you know, on the tech side, it's moved that you need like four or 500 million in revenue to go public, but, but there are really interesting companies at 100 million or 200 million revenue that couldn't go public. And I think that really, the SPAC market really started to fill a need there, providing the opportunity for companies that, you know, wanted capital, but weren't able to access the public market. Um, and, and so that, that really helped fill a void. I, I don't, you know, I think the interesting thing in biotech is I'm not sure that that really, that void exists in biotech, right? I mean, there are preclinical companies that are able to go public um, anyway today. And so, you know, it's, a, it's a definitely a different alternative. I, I feel like the need qu isn't quite there, but, you know, if the market shifts, then all of a sudden that need becomes greater, right? Or in like devices where it's been hard to get public without, you know, 30 million in revenue, there are you know, companies below that, that I think could benefit from being public and having, you know, access to a broader investor pool. And, but, you know, the only way to do it is maybe through a SPAC vehicle. And so, you know, there are different needs and different points in time where I think, you know, things can, can make a SPAC uh, more desirable or less desirable. And what, one question I had, do, I mean, do you guys hold stock? How do you, what do you do with the stocks once the companies are public? Do you guys hold? Do you distribute? What do, what do you, how do you, how do you handle that? Do you stay on the board? We, we, um, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, we, we actually, at the very front end when we started the firm, um, hadn't done a lot of thinking about it because we thought a lot of our, a lot of our exits were going to be through M&A. And so, but ultimately, obviously, we've we've devised a, a strategy and figured out how we want to manage things. And we also typically, when a company goes public, we still have a pretty significant position in the company. Sure. So it is it is a management issue. And you know, candidly, what what we do, and we actually talk to all of our companies about this kind of as they're going public, is you know just just that we. Um, you know, we're not long-term holders. We're not, you know, meant to be long-term holders. And by long-term, I mean, we're not holding on to a company public stock for 10 plus years, right? But we certainly are not, we're, we're also not in the business of, you know, just sort of 
as soon as the lockup is done, just, you know, dumping stock. We're, we're never going to do that either. That's just not, we don't think that's good for the company. So, you know, we typically go through, you know, a pretty disciplined process over time. Um, and by time, I mean, typically several years, um, you know, of sort of uh, exiting, exiting a company. And that's just sort of based on, um, you know, just, as I said, sort of a systematic process that we kind of go through internally. And we, you know, we, we do distribute stocks. So, um, you know, LPs can then make a decision as to what they want to do in terms of holding or not as well. Um, but, uh, but that's, you know, it, as it's a systematic process, um, it's disciplined and where we, we, we try to do, always try to do what we think is, is, uh, going to be going to work for the company as well as us. And Ali, how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, not, not too dissimilar, I think, from how Carrie and Third Rock think about things. I mean, I, you know, we certainly, um, and, and, you know, it's, it's hard, like, you know, I, all of these companies, and I'm sure it's the same for Carrie. I mean, you, you, you get so invested in it, you know, not just, you know, dollar wise, but emotionally and, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, oftentimes I do stay on the board, you know, after it goes public and, you know, we try and be helpful. I mean, especially like most, a lot of these companies, especially if they're preclinical going public, like it's still early, right? I mean, it, we're just, sure. we're, you know, we're just starting, right? And, um, and, and the reality though is, you know, I think what limits, you know, it's great that these companies are able to get public, but, you know, because we wind up owning so much of it. And again, I think Third Rock probably has the same issue, right? The idea of us selling right after it goes public doesn't exist, right? Because one, the volume's just too thin. So as soon as we start selling, you know, it's just, you wind up affecting the, the share price negatively and, and you, you don't get very much out. And so, I, you know, oftentimes because of that, we're, you know, when we invest, I think we're, we're investing knowing that we're going to have to play through some sort of data card, right? Um, because that's really when, you know, the volume will pick up and that's where, you, you know, th there's enough where you don't affect the stock price. Um, and, you know, you have to be right, right? Because if you're wrong, it's, it's going to be down 80 or 90% uh, the next day. And it's always hard, right? I mean, we're, we're investing at a very early preclinical stage, you know, in, in trying to forecast whether, you know, this drug with, a, you know, a team that could be different, right? Would, certainly will be, have more people and is going to work in a clinical trial that we have no idea what the design of looks like today. But, you know, hopefully you'll have the right people who will design it. And, you know, clinical trial design is a game of inches, right? You know, just little things here or there can affect the outcome, even if a drug works. And so, you know, it, it's, um, and, th and that that's usually what, you know, you have to be comfortable playing through. Because I think for us, you know, unlike, you know, some of the crossover firms that, you know, have small positions that can get out once the lockups come off, we don't have that luxury. And we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to be right about the biology and ultimately having it play out in, um, in, in a clinical trial. And, and then, you know, go from there, right? That's that sort of similar to Third Rock. We, we sort of have the same views on that. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I should just mention to the audience, we're going to um, take questions from the audience in, in a couple of minutes. I'm going to ask one more question of, of each of them, and then we'll we'll go to that. So you should put the questions into the Q&A um, or chat if you see it, but certainly the Q&A, and we will get to them. I know there's already one there, and we will get to that in a moment. But I just wanted to ask um, Ali and Carrie, and I honestly don't remember who goes first this time, so we'll <laughs> go to Ali. Um, go to Ali. Um, alphabetically, um, what do you, what do you, what changes do you expect to see in the future? I mean, what do you, what, what do you see out there? You know, how might it change if we're having this conversation in, I don't know, three to five years, or are you seeing things that might be, um, you know, might be very different? 
Yeah, I mean, hard to say. It's always some, I feel like it's always a geopolitical thing that changes the landscape, right? That none of us can control. So I, I agree mm. that like innovation seems like that's going to continue. There's, you know, just, it's amazing to me, like what you can do today that you couldn't six, seven years ago with these like new therapeutic modalities, right? So I, I think the innovation stuff's going to continue. You know, it's it's always the existential question. Okay, does does the IPO market slow down or go away in some form or fashion? And I do think it's usually a it's some geopolitical thing that that you know none of us can forecast that happens, right? I mean, there's certainly you know I think worries about drug pricing. Um, I think you know, the, and so certainly that 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 can come to play. I think you know there there's worries that about okay, is the FDA sort of stance and you know changing in terms of you know, being a little bit more on the conservative side. Um, hard to know, right? I, I think all of those things, you know, are, are just sort of par for the course when it, when you're a biotech investor and you just have to adapt and play through it. And so, um, so to me, you know, I, I think the, the, the front end part, the innovation part is going to continue. It's the, you know, will the capital markets, the amount that we're able to raise the cost of capital, will that, that change dramatically? And if it does, then I think we're all going to have to adapt in some form or fashion. Um, if it doesn't, then it's probably more of the same that it's been for the last six, seven years. And I mean, candidly, like I thought things were going to change three, four years ago. So I'm absolutely the wrong person to, to ask that question. But maybe <laughs> Carrie has a better viewpoint than I do. Fair enough. You know, so I mean, I, look, I, I agree with everything Holly said. I think, you know, with regards to the markets, I don't have any better crystal ball than anybody else. I mean, I think, you know, if you just look historically over time, you know, there's certainly been ups and downs, right? And, and you know, we've seen that. Will there always be as much capital available today um, as there has been? I don't know. I mean, I hope so, only because I think it's great, not just for the industry, but I think it's great for patients, ultimately. But um, I will say, you know, I, I do think that, you know, company creation will continue. I think that, um People are generally excited about that. And as I said, I think it's actually really made inroads into the universities and, and you know, the PIs in terms of just sort of what they can do. And, and that's, I think, an exciting thing. The, the one thing that I'll say, and I, and I do think that the pharma need will continue um, and innovation will continue to support that. I think that those are going to, are definitely going to continue, if not increase. The, the one thing I'll, I'll add, maybe that's something a little bit different is, you know, the, the areas that have gotten the most attention uh, you know, recently have been sort of those areas where there's a little bit reduced biological risk. And those are the areas where there's sort of more genetic definition, right? And so people always talk about oncology and it is true that in oncology, you can genetically define targets and patient populations and it, and it, and it truly does decrease risk. I mean, there's, there's no question about it. And I do fundamentally believe that there will be um, a time in the not too distant future, and I don't know what that means, but in the not too distant future where there are gonna be other significant areas that the biological risk will also be reduced um, because of some you know, sort of definition of patients and mechanism of action. Um, you know, we, we've looked at lots of different areas. I think you know, that maybe that's happening in the, immune space, uh, the autoimmune space, maybe, I mean, it's starting to happen in certain neurological diseases, schizophrenia, for example, there's a lot of genetic data now, you know, we're, we're not where we are with cancer on any of those yet, not nearly, but I do believe that those will continue and that reduction in sort of biological risk is going to, you know, continue to sort of enhance investment in areas outside of oncology. 
Interesting. Well, good. Well, we, we will take um, some questions uh, from the audience. And, and the first two went from Mohan Iyer and um, from Judith Kelleher Anderson um, are both really about series A's and the question about whether, uh, you know, how is it good for the companies to be raising so much money and, and aren't these founders getting highly diluted by these large series A rounds and uh, how do you think about that? I know, Carrie, since you're generally starting companies, you probably um, would end up with higher percentages maybe than, than Ali would in some of his deals, but maybe I'm not sure. So what do you think? I, I don't know if you can read the question on the Q&A, but, uh, but it's, uh, what, do you, what do you see uh, as the pluses and minuses of these very large Series A's? Look, I mean, you know, so I, I think it's a good point. And like, like anything in life, it's a balance, right? You know, I think it used to be, and, and we used to talk about this a lot when Third Rock got started. As you mentioned before, Randy, you know, companies got started with five or $10 million in a Series A. You know, right. we used to talk about that as, you know, a bridge to nowhere because you can't do enough with that much money in a company to, to have any kind of significant impact at any kind of significant milestone. On the other hand, you know, if you raise $200 million, sure, you're right. I mean, there is there is a fair amount of dilution and is that really the right thing to do? So I think ultimately, um, you know, it, it is a balance and, you know, we're thinking carefully, you know, we think for every one of our companies, it's not a it's not a cookie cutter approach. You know, we, we think carefully about where is the, you know, where is the right next milestone upon which we're gonna be able to raise additional capital and you know how much of a of an uptick will that get us in valuation and you know and then what's the risk of getting there and thinking about okay so that means we're going to put an x amount of capital to get us to you know to that place and give us a little bit of cushion etc cetera, etc cetera. um you know the the flip side of not raising enough money or significant series a's is you know you're stuck in a situation where you haven't quite hit your milestones um, you know, you're trying to raise a series B, you really still believe in your science and yet it's hard to prove. And so you then go ahead and raise a series B. And this for me has been the toughest spot, I think, in investing over the course of the last bunch of years. I think, you know, that second round, especially from a target discovery company, that second round of investing is tough. And um, unless you've really hit some milestones and you can get clobbered on valuation. And in that case, I'm not sure it wouldn't have made sense to raise $200 million at the front end when you could, um, as opposed to taking a 50% cut on your series, you know, on off your series A price in your, in your series B. So it, it's a balance and making that call is, is uh, not always so easy as judgment. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I you know, it's, I think the the trickiest, I mean, one, not raising enough, right, to hit the milestones, as Carrie pointed out. I think that's spot on. I mean, the other is raising too much. And, you know, you, if you're you just you, the burn rate increases, that incremental dollar that you're investing, you're getting a lower return on that investment. Um, and, you know, you start to, you know, you start to kind of spend a lot more loosely in terms of saying, oh, we don't really need this person, but, you know, we have the cash, why not hire them, right? And you start to, you know, like those decisions start to, to add up, right? And before you know it, you're kind of suboptimizing your outcome because your burn rate's high, you're, you're, you know, you wind up, you know, overspending, maybe not getting to kind of the milestone that you want. Um, and, and then you're in a tough spot, right? And I think those are, those two are the, the, the bookends and the, the right balance is in somewhere in between, right? Something that allows you to 
make meaningful progress, you know, move aggressively and, and fast, but you know, not so much that you're just burning capital um, and, and inefficiently. And I think that's that's how I sort of always think about it. And that's what worries me about some of these much bigger rounds, right? Um, that also worries me about like the undercapitalized rounds. And so I think there is a balance as, as Kerry points out. Yeah, what, is there kind of a typical ownership percentage that you guys look for? I mean, that's being asked in the series A rounds these days. You know, I mean, it really depends, right? It depends on the size yeah. of the raise. And I mean, typically, um, and, and you know, this is, this is kind of where for us, like the crossover stuff has gotten hard because you know, if we're not going to have meaningful ownership and for us, you know, like meaningful ownership is 20% or more, right. Um, that, you know, to, to move the needle in a $3 billion fund in, in, you know, in normal sort of outcomes, um, you know, anything less gets hard, right. And gets in and makes it less meaningful for, for a large fund. That's, and that's the blessing and the curse for us, right. Which, and regardless of if it's a $500,000 investment or a $50 million investment, like it takes the same amount of time. Right. And so, I think those are sort of the things that we we tried to think about, and you know, and as the valuations and some of these later stage rounds, which we used to participate in a lot, have gone you know gone up, it, it's getting harder to make that math work, and so you know that's pushed us. And I mean, in in NEA seventeen, you know, I'd say historically about half of what we do is seed Series A investment, and in, in NEA seventeen, which we closed in April of twenty twenty, all of it, all eleven investments that we've made have been seed Series A, right? And I think that's 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 a function of you know, like the prices at the series B's and on just, you know, being just too high to, to and, and, you know, sort of indirectly ties to ownership, but that's, that's how we usually think about it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the, I guess the thing that I would add to that is a, a lot of times we don't necessarily look at, I mean, ownership, obviously the series A is important. We, we do focus a bit more probably on, what do we think we're going to own at the at the IPO, for example? And you know, and candidly, for us, that's a high number. Uh, you know, we're we're looking to be in the thirty to forty percent range. I mean, we used to say forty percent and above. That's gotten a lot harder, um, candidly, for probably all the reasons we've talked about. But certainly, you know, we don't want to be in the fifteen to twenty percent range at the IPO. I mean, it does it happen sometimes? Sure. I mean, and you know, we may make that decision consciously, but. Um, but we're looking to be, you know, in that sort of 30 to 40% range at, at the, you know, at the IPO. Yeah. There's a question here from Brandon Cashman about M&A exits and what trends are you seeing there, particularly for late stage, either phase three or products that are on the market? Is there a lot of competition for that or how is that, how have you seen those companies treated? Go ahead, I mean, my, my, you know, like M&A, I think is always hard, like re regardless of where you are in stage. I mean, certainly if it's preclinical and you can sell the dream, it's one thing, but then, you know, anyone that has any shred of data and that, and I actually think this is true for companies already raising private financings and public financings, right? You know, if you, if you're preclinical and you can sell the dream, it's great. Right. And because people in their mind go to think and say, okay, well, this is definitely going to work. Right. That's, that's sort of human nature. But as soon as you get any shred of data, like that data will be picked apart. And, that, and, that, and I've seen it, whether it's public investors, private investors, pharma companies, like you will just get shredded, right? And because yeah, at the end of the day, like data is never gonna be perfect, right? And so um, so I, I guess, you know, it's, um, I, so I guess my sort of view is like, anytime you have data, it's, it's always gonna, you know, there's always gonna have to be an explanation, right? And, and regardless, you know, of who you're talking to, and then it just depends on the strength of that data. And, 
But I do think, you know, as Carrie pointed out, like people want later stage products, right? And so, you know, if the data is compelling, I think that company will have an easier time. If the data is mixed or, you know, or you have to kind of, you know, tell a story and get people to believe that story, then it's going to be harder. Um, and, and then it just depends on therapeutic area and need and all that. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a lot to add. I think that's that's exactly right. I think it, it does depend on the area, and if the data is compelling, you know, and you want to sell the company, it's probably going to be you're probably going to be able to do that. If the data is mixed, then as Ali said, I think that can happen a lot. I mean, we we've had data in the past that we thought was really compelling, and ultimately it got ripped to shreds by everybody, and it ultimately wasn't as compelling as we thought, or at least that's what other people thought. So. Um, you know, and it, it, it sometimes gets, gets really hard, but if the data is really compelling, um, you know, then I think you can probably sell what you want to sell and, and do pretty well. So, yeah. Have you seen, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, a lot of times when we see these M&A deals that, uh, that it starts with a pharma company coming to the biotech. Like it doesn't usually start with the biotech saying, okay, we're going to send out a book to everybody and, and try to sell the company. Has, what has what your experience been on that? I think that's generally right, except in a different situation whereby the, the biotech company was out doing partnering um, mm. and talking to folks about a partnering, op, you know, partnering opportunities and then, you know, there are times we've all you know, seen that where those partnering discussions could morph into, you know, into M&A discussions. But I think, you know, you're right. If, if anything's going to start out as M&A, um, it's much more typically going to be pharma approaching, unless it's a fire sale type of situation from the biotech where things are just not going well, right? So that's... Right. And those are hard to sell a lot of times anyway, I think. Right, right. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen like a formal structured process, right? Um, that that's been run by like a bank reaching, you know, like I, I I haven't seen that in a while. I mean, it, you know, we always think about like should we do that, but I think you know generally like the feeling is has been to to not do that, but um, but you know, admittedly, my end's probably small as well. So <laughs> that's it's always always an issue. Well, are there uh, if there are any other questions, um, please put them in the chat. We're getting close to the end of the hour. And uh, I really want to thank both Ali and Carrie for uh, a great discussion and for, for doing this and uh, wish you the best of luck. And hopefully that IPO market will stay hot for another seven years or whatever it's been. That would be, uh, that would be nice. It would al allow you to, uh, to do quite well, I imagine. Continue to raise more funds and build more companies. So, uh, Thank you very much and uh, appreciate it. And I guess uh, with that, I want to thank everybody for joining today.